I'm Georgie Okal, and welcome to the very first episode of Radio Headspace. For those of you who are familiar with Headspace already, we spent the last couple of years teaching you to live more mindfully, to be more present, to take 10 minutes out of your day every day to meditate and to be more curious about the mind. And it's that curiosity, I guess, that made us want to start exploring a little bit further to use this podcast to answer the questions, how does the mind work and what is the mind capable of? So every week I'll be here joined by some great guests helping us to answer those questions from scientists to athletes, explorers and more to find out what motivates them, how they achieve their goals and why we think the way we do. This month, we're taking on our anti-excuse project all across Headspace, looking at why we make excuses in the new year and how to stick to those resolutions that we too often break. And I want to talk about this from a couple of different perspectives. So later in today's podcast, I'm going to be chatting to neuroscientist Dr. Claudia Aguirre about the science behind making and breaking resolutions. But first, it seems fitting uh, to start things off on our inaugural episode by talking to mindfulness expert, author, former Buddhist monk and Headspace founder, Andy Puddicombe. So here he is. Hi, Andy. Hey, Georgie. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Good. So we're talking this month about the Anti-Excuse Project, how to maybe make this a year we, we don't make those excuses. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about you and your story and kind of how you ended up here and doing what you do. Um, sure. So I guess let's start near the beginning or perhaps when you were at university. That's when things kind of changed for you, right? Kind of your path took a different turn. I think my path's taken a lot of different turns <laughs> yeah. a, a, along the way. But yeah, I think um, the, the very earliest kind of thing, I guess, was, was learning meditation and taking that first step. And I did that with my with my mum. Uh, when she was going through a stressful divorce when I was about sort of 10, 11 years old. And I think it kind of stuck around, you know, it was in the background for me kind of growing up. But it was definitely, yeah, in my early, early 20s, I was doing a sports science degree and going through quite a tough time. I think university is quite a tough time for a lot of people. But a few things had kind of happened in my late teens. And, and I guess I had a lot of unanswered questions and my mind was very busy and I felt very easily overwhelmed by emotion. And I really just had this burning feeling of wanting to understand my mind, not from a book, not kind of in a theoretical way, but to, to really understand it so that I actually felt different as a result. And at that time, were you, you know, you said that you, you started meditating with your mom when you're mm. 11, 12 years old. Uh, was that kind of a practice that you stuck to? Was it just like bits here and there through those early years I think to begin with, I was um, I was young enough to be quite sort of disciplined with it, and and then like teenage years, you know, other stuff gets way more interesting than meditation. So it <laughs> kind of it took a bit of a back seat, and I dipped in and out of it. I kind of tended to use it a bit more like an aspirin, you know, when I felt kind of really stressed out. Um, and I think it wasn't really until yeah, as I say, kind of early twenties where I decided, okay, I actually want to go away and and do this kind of on a in a vocational way. Yeah. Yeah. So from that point, so you're at university, not finding, I guess, from your studies, the answers that you want to find. And then how long is that process between being like, this isn't what I need to be doing for myself to I'm going to go into the mountains and train to be a Buddhist monk? Yeah, so this is a, it's a tough one to explain because, 
it happened really quickly and I, I didn't sit down and make a make a list you know split a page in half go okay pros and cons of being a buddhist monk pros and cons of staying a sports scientist i kind of just I had this really strong feeling and experience you know one afternoon and by the end of the afternoon i kind of knew that that was what i was going to do i was going to be a monk and i went in and i i saw my head of year and i i told him what i had planned he thought I was completely mad, thought I'd lost it, told me to go and get some Prozac, see my doctor. And I just knew, you know, that I wasn't I wasn't gonna find the answers that I was looking for in a in a bottle of pills, you know. So I um yeah, I took the decision. I, I went back um home, I went back to the West Country. I worked as a waiter for, for three months. Uh saved up enough money and I, I flew off to, to India at the end of that year. And was that because that's a pretty sudden decision, <laughs> some might say. Yeah. Was it even, you know, an idea that you had toyed with while you'd started a university or did it honestly, just, it just came to you sort of, it just... Or, you know. I think as I sat there in a pub playing drinking games and looking around at all these new females that had suddenly kind of come into my life, um, I I didn't for a moment think about going away and being a Buddhist monk. I would really kind of never contemplated. I think maybe uh, as now as we're talking, I remember kind of maybe around sort of age of 15, 16 having a conversation with someone who'd gone away to India and lived in an ashram for a long time. And there was something about it which sort of vaguely fascinated me, but not enough at that age to to draw me in. Yeah. Yeah. So then you you go away for several years. Um when you were there, were you immediately like yeah, this is this is what I should be doing. Or were there kind of times at the beginning when you're like, what am I doing? Yeah, I think most of the time I was thinking, what am I doing? Um, <laughs> I think there's quite a romantic view, isn't there, of kind of leaving, escaping the madness of everyday life and going yeah. and sitting in a, a quiet monastery on a hilltop in the Himalayas. And that kind of honeymoon phase, I would say, usually lasts about a, about a week or two, maybe a month for some people. But eventually, kind of, we're confronted with our own mind. So it's not like you turn up at the monastery and you hang up all your baggage from your entire life and then you just go and sit in complete kind of bliss and silence. You know, to begin with, yes, there is a sense of relief. So the mind is quite kind of quiet for a little while. But then the mind gets a bit bored and it starts looking for stimulation. And because there's nothing on the outside to feed that stimulation, it has to go inwards. So it starts to kind of dig stuff up and to think about stuff and to get quite active again. So you really kind of, it's a bit like sitting in front of a, a mirror for the very first time. And it can be quite uncomfortable. Yeah. And then you, you continue doing that for 10, 10 years? Well, I spent time first, yeah, training as a, as a lay person um, and visiting different monasteries. Um, and then I went on and trained as a, as a novice monk uh, in the Burmese tradition. And then eventually I went and um, ordained as a, as a Tibetan a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And that was over a period of, of 10 years. And I would say that period of 10 years, you know, that coming back to that mirror analogy, when you first sit in front of it, the mirror is quite kind of cloudy. You see it, it's still quite a shock, but you don't see it that clearly. And then over the time, it's a bit like kind of polishing the mirror. So you see the, the mind a little more clearly the more you train. And you're going through that training process and do you, throughout those 10 years, you know, in the different stages of it, do you kind of know what you want the next stage to be? Or you, you got to the end of one, you're like, oh, no, I'm going to take it to this stage and, and this stage. Yeah, it's a good question. I I think I'm I'm definitely a little bit all or nothing kind of in character. So yeah. I, I think when I went away, I was like, right, that's it. 
I'm going to be a monk for the rest of my life. I think then I kind of I went through a period after a couple of years as I like, am I really sure about this and kind of I think it was only once I started to really understand meditation in a different way and and have a deeper appreciation for it that that desire to do it for the rest of my life changed from being an escape from everyday life to yeah. to genuinely kind of looking and searching for something and a feeling of being on a path towards something. So I think it it changed and evolved and I kind of wasn't sure, you know, whether I would stay with it forever or not, but I got to a place where I was quite comfortable either way. In fact, I even asked my teacher, um, I don't know what to do, whether to do this for the rest of my life or whether to kind of do make a shorter commitment. And I said, you know, can you can you decide for me? I basically just gave up responsibility. Yeah. It was, it was quite freeing to do. Yeah. It's actually it's really interesting that you say that you're quite an all or nothing person in some instances. I think I mean for me it's nice to hear I'm sure for a lot of people that's nice to hear because I guess this myth of meditation maybe is that you have to be this very balanced kind of person that you can't experience these extreme highs and lows that a lot of us do and we kind of have missteps with our extreme emotions, but yeah. that, you know, you can be that type of person and you can still come to meditation and Absolutely. And I think it's about how we choose to use it, you know. So it, it comes back to this idea of sort of intention and motivation. So if we're looking to to begin something new, it actually requires a lot of energy to begin that thing, you know. So it can be used in a really positive way. So I would, without that burning desire to go and do that, I would have never even begun the journey. So we can use that um, that passion for want of a better word, to to begin kind of new things in our our life, or to help maintain and sustain positive habits that we that we might have in our life, we just need to be aware that when they drift off in the other direction, that we see them clearly enough to kind of let them go and not get so involved. Yeah, and I guess that's what that's what Headspace is is all about is is using that and um, and that's I guess what you ended up doing. That was the next change is that you you left the the Buddhist tradition, I suppose, and came back to the Western world and brought with you what you'd learned in some respects? Yeah, I was um, I was actually, uh, I was working, I always want to say I was working as a waitress at a cocktail bar. I wasn't. <laughs> I was um, I was working um, as, a, I was sort of teaching meditation um, as, a, as a monk in, in Moscow at a Buddhist meditation center. And um, I noticed increasingly people were desperate for a way to be less stressed, to sleep better, to have, you know, happier relationships. And I could see that meditation provided all of these things, and yet the robes that I was wearing were clearly an, an obstacle. So it just started me me thinking, you know, kind of, so what do I feel passionate about? Do I want to teach meditation or do I want to be a monk? And that was a really easy decision to make. You know, okay. I wanted to teach meditation. I wanted to make it accessible. I wanted to demystify it. Uh, and, yeah, that I guess that realisation was the beginning of, of Headspace. Yeah. Uh, and so now we're in January and a lot of people, are, some people coming to that point in their lives where they want to make a big change or, you know, it's it's resolution time. So we're making big changes and smaller promises to ourselves. Uh, but what we do tend to do is make those decisions and then very quickly start making excuses why we're not going to do it. Why why as people do we always do that? You know, we're like, oh, I'm going to change this for the better yeah. and then spend, you know, the rest of the time making excuses not to. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things around New Year. Uh, number one, 
we put way too much pressure on that one day and that one moment of resolution making, right? It's like we're we're looking way too far ahead. And it's a classic kind of thing in meditation where we're trying to not look too far ahead, not look too far back, but instead be present here and actually approach things sort of more from a bite-sized mentality. So rather than thinking, right, I'm going to change myself forever and I'm going to give up this and I'm going to start this, instead we can kind of say, okay, what am I going to do today? Or what am I going to do this week? Or what can I commit to honestly and realistically for the next month? I'll reassess it at the end of the month and renew my resolution then rather than kind of saying, this is what I'm going to do for the entire year. And as soon as we miss a day, feeling really depressed and sad and then just throwing it all out the window because we feel like we failed in some way but it's i guess we need to be learn to be okay with those not failures but the the missing a day or the yeah because for me that's not a failure you know that is part of the learning process that is part of learning a, a new skill it's not that we've done something wrong when when we've missed it that is simply the nature of learning something new that sometimes we will miss it and that's okay and it's just about recognizing that being okay with that not judging ourselves too harshly and sort of getting back on the back on the wagon, so to speak. But I, I was just going to mention George. So I, I do think one of the the biggest reasons we we start things and don't necessarily follow through with them is this idea of of motivation. I know you've used mm-hmm. the, the the app yourself. And I do use it your, frequently. You'll know that um, kind of at the beginning of each day, I ask people to to really sort of think about or to ask themselves what what is the motivation for doing this. And very often, I don't think we're always clear why we do the things we do in life. We can have a vague idea, but it's not really clear. If we're clear about it, then motivation will never be a problem. And we will yeah. always find it easy to stick to things. Or at least, you know, we we won't veer off too too often. So I think that coming back to that motivation thing, be clear why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And, and that motivation, does it change well should we expect it to change on day to day week to week or i i think in meditation and in life it will change it's interesting i so um if you know my my wife comes from a fitness background and i I remember her talking about motivation of her clients in the past and very often they'd come along to begin with and maybe it was about kind of losing weight and maybe looking and feeling a little bit better and then maybe they'd have a child after a couple of years and then it became about well i want to be fit and healthy because i want to watch my children kind of grow up and then the kids grew, grew up it was like well I need to be a bit fitter because I want to be able to play football with my kids whatever it might yeah. be with meditation I think very often we come to it because there's something going on in our life maybe we're struggling with sleep or anxiety or whatever it might be and then I think over time there's a, an appreciation that it's not really about that one thing it's about our entire life yeah. and it's not about fixing something it's about how do we actually create the conditions where we prevent even getting to the point where we need to fix something. So I do think motivation will always change and that's why it's important to come back to it on on such a regular basis. Yeah, and I guess you miss a lot of that. If we, because we tend to make these goals like, I don't know, I'm going to run a marathon or climb a mountain or learn this new language by next month so I can go on this trip. And if we don't reach that one specific goal then we think we failed and all these yeah. things that have happened in the interim, yeah. we just kind of ignore almost. Yeah, and it really is, in, you know, I talk about this stuff a, a lot, 
talk to you, but it, it's focus. We're always focusing on there, and we're focusing so much on there that we forget about being here. We forget to enjoy the journey. It's really not about the destination. I would say the journey yeah. is the destination. And if we're thinking in any other way, then we're probably missing something along the route. Yeah, it's it's just funny for me to like have that conversation now, and I'm thinking about all these times, like, you know, I tried to run marathons, and there were a couple of times for whatever reason that I I couldn't do it, and I was like, I failed because I haven't run that marathon. But now I'm like, I, I I run now, and like two years yeah. ago, I was a person that didn't, and I've yeah. I've missed that. Like I haven't really noticed that because I think I failed on those things. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, and amazing to be able to even run a marathon i'm I'm impressed myself if i managed to run halfway down the street so (laughs) do you have do you have new year's resolutions to go into this year do you do you do that i do you know i i don't um i think i'm very i'm always very conscious at the at the beginning of the year because so many people are talking about resolutions inevitably i do sort of think is there anything that i'm that i'm doing differently um or that i could do could do better or more skillfully in my life and there are always things um, but there are so many things in my life. I think uh, it's. I don't tend to do them once a year. You know, I try and do it on a daily basis. Yeah. So if at the end of the day I feel like I've done something which hasn't been particularly helpful or skillful, then I reflect on that, even just briefly for 30 seconds and think, yeah, actually that wasn't a great way of doing it. Okay, next time that happens, try to be a bit more aware and and do it in a in a different way that's either more helpful for myself or for the people around me. And I feel if we do that, then when it comes to New Year, there's not really this long list of things that we want to change. It's we're already doing it. It's just I guess every day waking up and being in it and just noting how you feel and how you act. Yeah, and and again, the more clear we are about our, our motivation and intention in every single area of life, the more things just flow, and we don't need yeah. to think too much about it. Yeah, so I guess that said, you know, it's still good to set ourselves some goals and have these motivations. Yeah, so I think if, if we don't have like a, a regular practice, then I do think the new year, uh, it's a bit like the equivalent of a Monday, right? You know, yeah. you're not going to start something new on a Friday evening. You're going to wait until Monday. So it's it's a similar kind of thing. It's the start of the year and it does present an opportunity. So I would definitely encourage people to think, okay, so what would I like to do? The only thing I would say, you know, I mentioned it before, is don't put too much pressure on that kind of, that one day. Instead, think about it day by day, week by week, and make realistic kind of goals. Um, set set some goals, if you like, and be gentle with yourself if you don't manage to achieve them every single time. You're not doing something wrong. You're simply learning a new habit. Okay. Well, Andy, thank you so much joining us it's a pleasure thanks and, for having me along Georgie no thank you and I'm sure we'll be we'll be seeing you again on oh, Radio I'm sure. Headspace I'm sure you're listening to Radio Headspace where every week we investigate how the mind works and what the mind is capable of now as I said at the beginning of today's show we're taking on the anti-excuse project right across Headspace this month and it's interesting to note what actually goes on in the brain around this time of year so I'm now joined by a new member of the Headspace family, our resident neuroscientist, Dr. Claudia Aguirre, to talk us through the science of why we make excuses and resolutions. Hi, Claudia. Hey, Georgie. Did I get your last name right? You did. Fantastic. I was struggling with it yesterday. <laughs> um, so welcome to, to Headspace and to Radio Headspace. Glad to be here. Um, I wanted to ask, first off, this kind of understanding of how our mind actually works and what scientifically is going on in our minds, 
can we as you know people not neuroscientists just normal people like me um can we kind of learn stuff about how the mind works and apply it in our in our day-to-day lives is that possible absolutely there's so much going on right now in the field of neuroscience it's really exploding especially in the last decade or so and there's studies published every day so the key is to get your information from reputable sources and these can be news sources you know newspapers um, really talking about the latest and greatest neuroscience studies and then you can take these learnings and apply them to your own life by understanding the brain and how the mind works a little bit, you'll be able to understand a little bit more about how behavior works and maybe your own behavior. Yeah. And you can definitely make some changes according to that. I like that. And talking of changes, uh, we are, of course, talking about the Anti-Excuse Project here at Headspace this month. In the context of New Year and making news resolutions, which I guess if you think about it is maybe something of a bizarre tradition in the first place. Why do we why do we even do it? Why do we make resolutions? Where does that come from? Yeah, you know, I think humans have had a sense of wanting to renew for a long time, especially when they're experiencing seasonal changes. So maybe not so much in L.A., but let's take the northern hemisphere with four proper seasons. Uh, so, for example, the end of winter is the beginning of spring. And so this means the beginning of the harvest season. And this has typically been a time for a lot of cultural festivals and celebrations. And, you know, this goes back thousands of years. Um, So I think people do have this natural sense of renewal right around this time. And ancient civilizations, you know, we're talking the Babylonians, the Romans, they also had practices of sort of ringing in the new year with a new leader, reaffirming their oaths to their new leader or to the gods. And so over time, it seems like people have been making promises to do this or to do that. And the shift has happened in terms of where they're sending these messages. You know, it used to be an external situation. So you're making promises to your leader or to your gods, whereas now it's become an internal. So like saying how you're going to change yourself for the new year. Really what we're seeing today in like a modern New Year's resolution is for self-improvement. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially over the decades and eras we've just got a lot more selfish (laughs) (laughs) now it's all me 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 yeah Uh, I mean statistically then how likely are we to keep these resolutions and I guess specifically you know making them now at this time of year when everyone else is making them as opposed to just a random point in the year yeah, you know, I think statistically it we are likely to see more more people making resolutions at this time. Um, you know, it's such a it's such a tradition in in some cultures. And a recent poll, this is from CBS News. This is just last year in 2013. Uh, well, I suppose 22 years ago. Yeah. Um, they found that 68 percent of Americans don't make New Year's resolutions. That's you know more than half. Yeah. And so. We're basically seeing that not everyone makes these resolutions, um, even at this time. So you can imagine that in the middle of July, that number is really, really low. Yeah. And so, yeah, even the ones that do make them, um, you know, not a lot of people actually keep them. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, how many of us are keeping them? Well, you know, there's just statistics here and there, but um, there is a fun book called Book of Odds, which is basically a collection of statistics about everyday life. And um, the authors say that about 8% of people who make New Year's resolutions stick to them. So you're talking about less than half of the population even making them and less than 10% even keep keeping them. Okay. And, um, and those who don't keep them usually abandon them after just one week. 
Oh, really? So already, I mean, this is was in the first week of January now, so pretty much, pretty much, everyone listening to this <laughs> who made resolutions has already given up on them. Most likely. I mean, is it even a good idea to be making resolutions at this time of year when you know we're at such a point of excess and detox and all these like extremes is this a good time to start you know making resolutions making changes yeah you know i think compared to other times of the year it probably is and the fact is that people that actually make resolutions they're actually 10 times more likely to change their lives than those who don't okay so that's a pretty good incentive to make them so there may only be a small number of people out there doing it but those people are more likely to to keep them. Exactly. So, you know, if this is the time when it's, you know, a good time to do it, why not just give it a shot? And if this is the, the good time to be doing it, to be making a change, what sort of changes are we most likely to be able to keep? Is it giving something up, starting something new, making uh, small changes in our lives? What kind of resolutions should we be trying to, to keep? Yeah, I think it's easier to make small changes or little tweaks in something that we're already familiar with, rather than doing something completely new, like learning a new language. Mm -hmm. And giving something up is actually even harder. So say, you know, one of the top resolutions every year is quitting smoking. Now, this requires a bit more discipline. And basically, you're breaking the neural pathways that have been carved deep for many years. And this can be difficult because addictions feed the brain's reward cycle, which is a very steadfast feedback loop. And that reinforces our behavior over many years. So this is actually quite difficult. And there might even be a genetic predisposition towards a certain addiction. So that makes quitting even harder. But if we resolve to better ourselves in some way, you know, lose weight, um, wake up earlier or sleep more, etc., um, then we are going to have to, you know, it's going to take some time to sort of transform these goal-directed actions into full habits. And there's actually a special part of the brain that's involved in this transfer of these goal-directed actions to a full habitual response, and that's called the basal ganglia. And essentially, you know, what we're doing is we're rewiring our brain to serve a higher purpose, neuroplasticity. Wow. So we're, we can physically do that to our brain, like forming these new habits, changing these things in our lives. It's a physical change in our brain that we're instigating. Absolutely. That's really interesting. <laughs> um, but then, I mean, and you mentioned there that, first of all, some of us are wired genetically to find certain addictions or habits harder to break and, you know you've already said that it's it's hard to keep these resolutions but what does tend to happen and this brings us back around to our anti-excuse project that we're doing on Headspace is that we'll maybe stick to it for a few days uh first couple of weeks maybe of January and then the excuses start coming in and and the rationalization of like oh I can't do this because of this I'm like I would go to the gym but like I'm tired or I had so much to do whatever we spend so much time, and I spoke to Andy about this earlier in the show, but we spend so much time making excuses. Why do we do that instead of just getting on with it? I think the biggest reason is pain. So at some point, our very lofty goal is going to cause us some form of pain. 
Whether that means you're depriving yourself from comfort foods, something yummy, carbohydrates or sugars, or you're freezing your buns off to get to the gym, <laughs> or, you know, in the end, like if you're trying to learn something new, you feel inadequate or frustrated, or, you know, there's all these different feelings and emotions like fear and shame and vulnerability. They're pretty powerful emotions, and they can definitely prevent us from taking action. Yeah. So can we get out of that cycle, though, of excuses and rationalization and, and listening to that pain response? Yes, yes. It does take conscious effort. It's not going to be super easy. And the first step really is to be aware of the fact that you're even making excuses. Okay. You know, listening to that little voice in your head saying, wait a minute, that is such a lie or such yeah. an excuse. Um, and so once you are aware of that, I think meditation, mindfulness and meditation can really bring focus and attention to our emotions and our actions. And so in doing practice, you will be able to better understand your own emotions and your own actions and say, hey, you know, this is just an excuse. And it's not easy, you know. It What starts as this tiny little lie can actually be transcribed into neural code that makes its way deep into our long-term memory yeah. so that we actually believe ourselves. So we kind of might make up an excuse or a pain or something that's going on and then that becomes real because we... Exactly. Yeah. You know, we if it's a long time ago, it might make its way into a long term memory. And and by then it's definitely, you know, not a way to restore the truth. You just want to it's almost hard to think about something that you've done in the past. Maybe it's better to resolve something that you want to change in the future. Yeah. And, um, you know, by being more mindful about your own emotions and whether you're rationalizing, um, as you say, take part in take part in that anti-excuse project. Yeah, you know, no more excuses. I mean, it's nice to think that we that we can do that, and I know that absolutely to a certain extent we can notice those excuses and kind of ignore them or like deal with them and keep going with something. But there does come a point for many of us, I think, where we try something and we try and we we don't necessarily give up we don't make excuses but it just turns out we're not very good at it and we give up because like we perceive that we are failing at that thing what happens in our mind when you know we try something and we think that we're failing yeah that's really interesting um i think it also comes down to the setbacks so what are they are they something that we are controlling or are they something that we're not able to control? So these setbacks are going to um, basically determine our persistence to getting this goal, to achieving our resolution. For example, if you're a student in a class and you failed at the class or you didn't or failed an exam, you know, what was it due? Was it due to something that you had control over, like you didn't study? Or was it something that was uncontrollable? The exam was actually unfair. And so if you perceive that you have more control over these little setbacks, then you're able to, well, you're more likely to follow through and try again or to try it for the first time. Uh, so it, this is amazing because you're like telling us all these ways that we can kind of cheat our brains and think we can <laughs> do something. Or not cheat it, but, you know, like we can learn how to use our mind to keep going with the things that we're trying to do. But sometimes that isn't even the problem. The problem is getting started in the first place. Like we make this uh, goal for ourselves. But we're like, oh, I'll start it tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And we 
procrastinate so much whenever we're trying to start something new. Even when we're, you know, we have like a, a inf- like a finite uh, like timeline to do something in and we'll still procrastinate rather than getting it done. Why do we do that? Yeah. So, you know, procrastination is basically delaying some sort of action, even though we know we're going to be worse off by doing it. You know that by delaying something, you're not going to achieve your goal, and yet you still do it. Um, So this is actually a personality trait. It's not something we're actually born with. It's something that we learn over time with families. And uh, it does have some very clear associations with impulsiveness, low self-control. Basically, procrastination is a problem of self-regulation. And that's great because that means that we are able to change it, too. There's different types of procrastinators. For example, you have the arousal types that just need a little bit of a thrill, you know, (laughs) to wait till the last minute for that rush. I have to admit, I'm kind of that. I fall into that category. It's like, I need that stress and then I can get on stage or I can do a paper. Um, But there's other kinds, like the people that just avoid. They avoid because they have a fear of failure. That's me. A fear of success. Um, And in any case, they're just concerned about what others think of them. Uh, They would uh, rather have others think that they lack effort than ability, which is very interesting. And finally, you just have people that just can't make a decision, you know, and that's why they end they end up procrastinating doing something because they just can't decide. And uh, and so these you could see that they're different kinds of people and how they delay something due to how they're thinking about themselves, really. And, and you know, studies do show that even a brief period of mindfulness meditation can serve as this quick and efficient strategy to foster self-control under conditions of low resources, which means that self-regulating is what it is. You can regulate it by yourself. So if you're procrastinating, you're doing that to yourself, and you can change that by yourself. It's actually, it's it's kind of a... A scary thought that we do have so much power and control over it because we do we're like, oh, you know, I just I procrastinate. I never do this. I can't do this. But it's like all this stuff is within our power to change it. Like, yes. You're that first type of procrastinator we mentioned. I think I'm the second type where like I don't want to do something in case I fail. But it's all a question of, you know, the power over the mind to to think differently about. Exactly. About it's all about that. Um, so does it then help? or hinder us when we're trying to make these changes and have a little more power over maybe our our mind in making these changes does it help to tell other people about what we're trying to do trying to change you know again it comes down to are you telling them the truth or are you telling them a lie did you say hey i'm resolving to learn russian and yeah i already you know speak it pretty well and you haven't (laughs) even tried that's just going to feed into the fact that you probably won't reach that goal um, especially because people reinforce behaviors. So if you tell people that you're working on an attainable goal and they know that you're working with it, then you'll probably get some positive feedback from them. Sometimes you might even find a buddy in this, which is why I think it's a good idea to, if you're going to make any resolution, you might as well do it when a lot of people are already doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, you get that support from the support system from different people. In any case, I think, um, you know, I do believe in the power of visualization and intention. And so if you decide that you want to go to a better place, it's only going to help you along the way. This is why other people are helpful. You know, they're shocking us out of our own mind 
we're stuck in our own minds some ways, and sometimes they they call us out on the excuses, or they or they say that yeah, you can do it, or I'll do it with you, and this is a, a very powerful support system. And and I guess so. Then on that same token, we should uh, we should call out our friends. You know, if they if we know about their intentions and resolutions, and they're like, oh, I just like I think my leg hurts today. We're like, no. You have this intention, and it's it's a perceived pain. It's yes. not a real pain. Go, yes. Go back to the gym. <laughs> exactly. Um, Claudia, thank you so much for this. Is amazing. I didn't th- just the mere fact there are three different types of procrastinator is blowing my mind. But if this year, two thousand fifteen, is going to be the year for all of us to embrace the anti excuse project, to finally give up making excuses, how do we do that? Well, you know, the first step really is to resolve to have something that's attainable. Make small changes. Uh, That's going to be the easiest. If you're going to put a very lofty goal out there that's going to take maybe more than a year to get to, um, chances are you might not get there. So having a concrete idea of something and, and, you know, maybe even making a checklist. So if you want to, say, lose 20 pounds rather than I want to lose 100 pounds, um, it's going to be easier to lose 20 pounds and you can check yourself every day, um, you know, know, use the support system as motivation and um, and other top ones, you know, quitting, quitting smoking. Um, some of these things, again, you might need a little extra help, especially with people with psychological conditions that already get them into that place. That's going to require a little bit more help. Um, but the first step really is to make these concrete, visualize it, see it in your mind, see your success. And I think you'll be able to reach your goal and maybe even break through it yeah thank you i feel uh, genuinely inspired (laughs) by that um well claudia thank you for talking to us and of course uh we'll be seeing you here more radio headspace and if you want to know more about claudia uh, more about her journey and also see uh some of the writing that she's been doing for headspace then just head over to the headspace blog we've got a Q&A with dr claudia up there and some of her writing is on there too. You can also, while you're there, find out more about the Anti-Excuse Project that we're doing all through January. And while you're there, why not download the Headspace app and start your mindfulness journey by meditating for just 10 minutes every day. And I will see you next time here on Radio Headspace.